I was taken totally by surprise when I got punched in the face outside a nightclub. It was years ago in a case of mistaken identity. The two people who attacked me thought I was someone else, and in my confusion, I didn't recognize the danger quick enough to avoid it. And while my lip got busted open, I was able to walk away. Many young men aren't so lucky. It's a headline we see all too often. Another one-punch attack leaves a young man fighting for life. Within probably 10 or 20 seconds, uh, one of his mates came over and before I had the chance to look up, he hit me in the face. And I fell down and the side of my skull landed in the gutter. It's become accepted that the risk of violence is one you have to take if you're going out to town for a good time. The result of a single punch can be critical head injury or worse. And that's what happened to Ben O'Toole when he cracked his head on the pavement after being punched in the jaw in an unprovoked attack that left him in hospital for six weeks and changed his life forever. He operated on me and he saw me in the state that I was and he, he brought me back to life. He said, I didn't think you'd be walking into my office. I didn't think you'd be talking to me. And I don't mean six weeks after your operation. I mean, Never again. full stop. Determined to use the pain he's gone through for good, Ben has travelled from school to school, sharing his story with thousands of young boys and men in the hope it might make them think twice about throwing a punch or encourage them to step up as a mate and stop a fight before it starts. As Ben says, violence stops when we understand the devastating repercussions our actions can have and make it manly to stay in control. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. All right, so Ben, you've told your story many times over recent years. You've told it again and again. Why do you keep telling it? What's what's important about that to you? I guess my story got to a point where it became easier for me to be able to tell it. And it just became it became something that I felt like was for other people. Um, I didn't need to tell it, you know, to achieve a sense of like catharticism. Yeah, it's an easy one. Uh, I haven't used that word very that. often. Um, but I just, I just felt like I had something to offer that other people could really benefit from hearing. And um, I'm a real believer in learning things through experience. But unfortunately, there's a few lessons. Um, experience is a bit hard to get to, to learn a message or to, to understand something. Um, and I think being the victim of violence is, is definitely one of those. And, yeah, I just found like when I was telling people this story, people wanted to hear it. They wanted to know more about it. They had a lot of questions. Um, yeah, I just felt, I felt like it had value and, and, yeah, it became something I just wanted to keep sharing and passing on. All right. So just take us through, take us through what happened. Sure. Uh, it was 2007 and it was my 22nd birthday. Uh, I was living in Melbourne at the time and I went back home to Geelong to had dinner with all my family and then to head out with all of my mates from high school that I wasn't getting to see as much as um, as much as I would like to have living in Melbourne. Uh, as the night was wrapping up, um, I put my mate in a cab to go home. I was about to get into the next one and I decided to go across the road and get something to eat. Um, standing outside of a shop, eating a meat pie, this guy walked past and um, held some abuse at me and a, and a person I was standing with and just totally at random, like without any any um, cause? Random enough, he this guy had actually tried to start a fight with me earlier in the night. Uh, he was going around looking for a fight with anyone and was just trying to get a rise. Uh, I'm not a violent person. I didn't engage. I often ignored him and walked away. Uh, but then I guess when he tried again later on, I was a bit, yeah, I was a bit sick of, of being targeted and I, I 
said I said something towards him. Um, he came up, started acting aggressively. We argued, and then he walked away, and I kind of felt like the whole thing was done. Uh, then, within probably ten or twenty seconds, uh, one of his mates came over, and before I had the chance to look up, he hit me in the face, and I fell down, and the side of my skull landed in the gutter. His mate hit you um, in the face. Yeah, uh, I hadn't spoken to his mate. He hadn't said a word to me, um, but. But in that time between our argument, they were talking and, and this guy decided he wanted to come and uh, teach me a lesson. Was that from behind? Uh, no, he hit, me, he hit me in the face. He came up and, and, and stood in front of me. But I was looking down at my phone and by that stage I was pretty um, – I thought it was done. I thought we'd had our argument and that was as far as it was going to go. So I wasn't standing there expecting that I'd need to defend myself. I guess that's the thing though. Often when these things happen – uh, people are taken aback and taken by surprise and whoever's attacking you tries to use that element of surprise and a lot of people just wouldn't expect such shocking violence to come out of nowhere. Um, so I guess that's part of it that unfortunately if you're in those kinds of environments, people just have to always be really aware, which I'm sure is part of your message. Yeah, and it's a, it's a pretty difficult thing to do, um, especially when – Oh, like especially when drugs and alcohol are involved, um, I was, you know, I was pretty intoxicated. I was, I was out celebrating, and my guard was probably down. Um, inhibitions were, you know, inhibitions were down as well, um, and probably was was feeling quite naive. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really hard thing to need to tell people to to be aware and be really on top of, you know, the environment you're in and what's happening. That's a real it's a tricky thing to try and encourage someone to do because it can really just um, suck all the fun out of out of going out and having a good time. If if, if you feel like your back's always to the wall and you're always assessing a room, um, and I think a big part of why I do what I do is not so much about teaching people to go and and be really careful and be really aware, but trying to get everybody to think about like this is the magnitude of the impact, um, and hopefully changing the viewpoint of of some of these potential like perpetrators, um, guys who don't think anything about violence. They just see the glorification of it um, and see that, you know, look at it as a hero kind of thing to do. Um, that's that's the area I'm trying to impact. Because ideally, of course, we'd like to stop it before it happens. You know, in a perfect world, we could get to everyone who would ever potentially attack someone and get into their head and stop them going that far, then you wouldn't have to worry about the rest of it. But, of course, we don't live in a perfect world. Yeah, yeah, that's the ideal. So take us back to that moment when you got hit. Were you unconscious before you hit the ground? What happened then? Within a couple of seconds of hitting the ground, yeah, I was unconscious. I don't have any memory of of this moment and even probably up to a couple of minutes before I was hit. Um, so I've, I've relied on witness statements and CCTV footage to piece the story together. But I know I was unconscious pretty much straight away. Somebody called... Uh, waved down a police car, he called an ambulance um, and I was taken to Geelong Hospital um, just a few blocks away. Uh, they did some assessments um, and after a couple of hours um, they 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 understood or they, they came to the realisation that I was having a, a severe brain hemorrhage and that they Geelong Hospital weren't equipped to deal with that. So they What does that mean? What does that mean, a severe brain hemorrhage? 
So uh, the impact of my skull hitting the ground, the side of my brain started swelling and it was, it was swelling to the point that it was pushing up against the inside of my skull and brains can only exist in that state for so long before, before irreversible damage starts to occur. So once they discovered that, they knew that they had to um, yeah, open, up, open up my skull and basically just let my brain um, expand and breathe and not be pushed against anything um, until the swelling was able to come back down. And, yeah, they weren't equipped to do that at the Geelong Hospital. So I was put in a helicopter and flown up to Melbourne to the Royal Alfred to have that surgery about five hours after, after I fell down and my head hit the concrete. So that's a long time to have to wait. Uh, with that swelling going on, so were you were you conscious at that point? Not like not to my memory any of this, but but from reading doctors' reports and reading hospital reports, I um I was unconscious for the first couple of hours, and when I woke up, I was acting really aggressively. Right. Um, I was yelling at nurses, I was swearing, I was pushing people away. Even by that stage, a couple of my family members were in the hospital, mm. um, and I was like pushing them away, and all of those were really um. I guess, I guess common traits for, for any sort of brain injury or essentially what they found in me. Um, so from that, they decided to, to yeah, uh, CAT scan or a CT scan um, of my brain just to see if, if they could find anything. Uh, and that's when, yeah, that's when they recognised the swelling and um, had to put some things into action to save my life. So they had to open up your head? Yes. So once I was up in Melbourne, um, yeah, they drilled three holes in the side of my skull, um, cracked it open like a door, um, had to drain some blood clots that had occurred and, uh, yeah, just just give my brain some space for the swelling to come down um, before they could put my skull back into place. Fuck. Um, which happened all, all in the same operation, which is pretty, yeah. pretty amazing what they can do, what they're capable of. Yeah, so that night got turned on its head real quick, which is... You know, it's so scary how that how that can happen and how it happens again and again. You know, one split second decision. In your case, you seem like you obviously function very highly now, but for a lot of people, irreversible damage done in that in that moment of aggression that changes someone's life forever. What was the um, what was the health impact of that? You know, in the in the days and weeks and, and months and years following. Days following, just excruciating headaches. The days that I was in hospital, uh, just felt nauseous all the time, was throwing up occasionally, just fatigued, just like sleeping a lot when I wasn't, um, when I wasn't awake with a thumping headache. Uh, but I only spent five days in hospital, which I was told was probably the shortest stay someone can have after the kind of operation that I had. And so I was discharged and got to go back home um, to Geelong and... Um, Went like went back to my family home to live with with mum for a while, and it was probably it was probably about a month all up of of feeling the physical impact of the toll of of my injury and the operation. Um, Five a.m. headache every morning to wake me up, pretty tired, sleeping a lot, just feeling really run down most of the time. But once I got to about the four week mark, most of that subsided, and I started to feel pretty pretty normal, pretty, pretty healthy, um, almost to the point where I thought I was back to normal. I went and had a, went and had a, um, an interview with my surgeon six weeks post-op 
um, and he delivered me a lot of information that I probably <clears throat> wasn't expecting to hear, which gave me some real insight into where I was in my, I guess, return to full health. And so what did he say to you? Uh, was that to do with, with how your brain was looking? or? So I remember, I remember going into his office um, with my mum. We sat down and, and we did some small talk and I was in a pretty bright mood at that time. I was feeling healthy. I was feeling kind of back to normal and I was, I was expecting to go in and him to say, great, you're recovered now. You can go back to work. You can resume normal life. Uh, and then he, yeah, he shared some insights that he had. Um, one, he was really surprised that I walked into his office, um, that I wasn't in a wheelchair, that I didn't need assistance to walk in. And two, that I was talking and that I was sitting down with him and, and I was having a conversation and I was contributing and asking questions. And so he'd looked at your, he'd looked at your scans and stuff and had compiled what he thought was going to be the picture of who you were and then he saw you come in after that? Yeah, or even more to the point that he operated on me and he saw me in the state that I was and he, he brought me back to life, but he had a very different image of what my life was probably going to look like. Yeah, and so like he, he told me that flat out. He said, I didn't think you'd be walking into my office. I didn't think you'd be talking to me. Um, and I don't mean six weeks after your operation. I mean full Never stop. again. Like I didn't think you'd ever be in this place. Did he tell you about the damage? Did he tell you just about like, you know, just how bad it was when he was operating on it? I don't think he shared it like that, but I think he was really transparent in that um, a lot of people that have the kind of injury I had and have the kind of operation that I have, that I had, uh, don't often get the kind of recovery that I was, that I was experiencing. Um, and that can be on a really wide ranging scale. Like there could be some small sort of cognitive, um, impacts, um, maybe even some minor physical impacts right down to, you know, I could have, I could have injured my spine when I was knocked over and could have lost the use of my legs, lost the use of my arms and my legs, I could have been wheelchair bound, I could have been in a vegetative state, like a whole a whole range of things. And so I think for him to see me walk in to his office with a smile on my face and sit down and to be able to talk to him about this operation, um, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't expecting that was going to be my outcome until he saw How it. How that make you feel to see a surgeon who sees these kinds of injuries all the time be shocked that you were more or less all right? I, I broke down after I left that meeting. I was really overwhelmed by that information. Um, also pretty, I just like, I just wanted it to be done. Like I just wanted that. It had been a really hard six weeks on me and my family. And I was just kind of sick of being sick and unwell. Um, and so to kind of hear him say that, and then put a bit of a time frame on what my recovery actually was, which was more like six months, not six weeks. Part of me was really angry that I was going to be stuck in a bit of a holding pattern for another, you know, four and a half months. But once that feeling had subsided, I realised how lucky I was to even have that feeling. Yeah, realising like, the gravity of it's not going to be the rest of your life though, you know, as awful as this is. This yeah. could be all that there is for so many people that end up in that situation. Yeah, I just have to make some, you know, alterations to my life for four months and be really careful and really look after myself physically and mentally. And if I was able to do that, like I was 
going to go back to having a really normal life, like exactly the same kind of life that I had before I was assaulted. And when that eventually sunk in, that was a really big sort of, it propelled me to want to do something, yeah, to want to do something about the impact that it occurred to me. Did you spend a really long time feeling like a victim and, and feeling, you know, that that incident had taken your your confidence away? What was it like for you mentally after you went through that in the short term? Yeah, I think definitely those first six weeks I felt, yeah, I just felt like a victim. Um, I was really angry at the guy that hit me, uh, really upset that he'd put the brakes on my life. Um, at the time, I just started a new job probably three weeks before I was hit and I couldn't go to that for a period of time. You know, I had to move back in, sort of half move back in to home down in Geelong and um, going from like a 22-year-old, like independent, working full-time, living in Melbourne, um, all of this stuff, uh, yeah, I felt like I'd sort of fallen back a few pegs in where I, where I wanted to be in life. Um, yeah, and absolutely just felt like, yeah, felt like a victim and was really angry at being in that position. And what about when you were when you were going out on the street? Did you notice that your perspective on the world changed after that in terms of seeing potential threats and, and having that in the back of your mind whenever you were out in public? Definitely the first few months when I started going out again, it took me a while to, to want to go out at night. Um, and part of my recovery was that I wasn't allowed to drink. So as a 22-year-old, I kind of, you know, I latched on to those first couple of drinks just to relax and, and, and feel part of, you know, feel part of the energy of, of a nightlife, of the nightlife. Um, so not being able to do that, I was pretty, yeah, felt pretty stiff when I was going out and, yeah, noticed the first few times I was just canvassing the room. Like I just look around and just look for threats, anyone that looks suspect. Um, yeah, and it was pretty, it wasn't a very fun thing to do. Um, do you still do that now? Not to the degree that it impacts my ability to enjoy myself. I think it's just more like second nature now. If I walked into a if I walked into a room at night and I didn't feel safe about something, I'd have no qualms in in turning around and walking out. Uh, where that probably would have felt a bit harder as a as a twenty two year old, you know, really conflicted with going somewhere and maybe like really wanting to be there. And then if there's something that makes me feel unsafe, really wrestling with that. And yeah, a lot of internal monologues. Where now it's just I know. I know what the impact is. That awareness and doing a scan when you walk into the into a room, that's a that's a good thing. That's probably something that just about everyone should adopt. Not to the point where, you know, you're anxious or worried about the environment that you're in, but just being aware of where people are and where exits are and and sort of making a bit of a read off people in the room, that's probably a good practice to have in place as long as it's not, you know, the only thing on your mind as you're trying to enjoy being wherever you are yeah yeah i think it's yeah dangerous if that becomes like if that becomes the priority of your time you know in a place like that and hanging out with people um and that was something that i really wanted to reclaim uh to be able to go out and to feel safe and for that not to be at the front of mind all the time um and that definitely took a while but i think yeah i think knowing that now i would walk away if i was feeling if I wasn't feeling safe, I think having that as like an internal value that I carry around makes me a lot more comfortable when I go out because um, I don't feel like I'm going to have that internal struggle and, and 
you know, pull against myself deciding what I should or what I shouldn't do. Um, that's just ingrained and, and, yeah, second nature, I suppose. Was there an investigation into the guy who did it? Yep. He, uh, there was a lot of witnesses who put statements forward in, on my behalf. Uh, there was CCTV footage. Um, and after, I think after a couple of days, they had, the police had already worked out who it was. Yeah, he handed himself in into into police. Um, I think probably knowing that he was going, they were going to either knock on his door or he was going to make the first step. Yeah, so he was charged with um, yeah with a few different forms of assault. Like yeah, I can't remember all of them. It's been a little while, but um, yeah, a few different assault charges. Uh, and yeah, we went through the court process um, in Geelong, and he was uh, he ended up getting a nine month intensive corrections order. Um, he had to go to anger management counselling. He was in two years good behaviour. Uh, he got fined a lot of money. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of things that would have impacted his life. Absolutely. Did you ever see him again? Uh, no, no, never since. Um, he wasn't he wasn't from Geelong. Uh, he lived in the outskirts of Melbourne. Uh, he'd come down to have a night out with his mate, who was the initial um, instigator. But no, apart from seeing him in court, I've never, yeah, I've never seen him again. Do you think he would have been remorseful after all that? Do you think many who do, who perpetrate these kinds of attacks are remorseful at some point or is it hard to say generally? It was hard. I found it hard to read with him. His lawyer was quite good at telling the court that he was remorseful. But I, I really, I just wanted an apology. Um, by the time we got to the end of our court, uh, our court appearance, our time together in court, I, um, yeah, I'd, I'd sort of developed a lot of empathy for the guy that hit me. He had a really tough upbringing, um, parents that weren't around for him and didn't support him growing up. I looked at my life and I had the complete opposite, um, a really loving family, a lot of support, a lot of care um, that really like set me up for life. But, yeah, I think the thing I really just wanted for him was, was to be able to come and say he was sorry for what he did. Yeah, by the time we got to the end of the court case, that's all I really wanted from him. Um, I didn't want him to go to jail. I didn't want that sort of punishment. Um, yeah, I was yeah, I was just hoping for an apology. What was it like for you to see that CCTV footage? Oh, pretty weird, pretty confronting. I was given the opportunity, like my lawyer actually like called me into his office and, and it told me they had it and if I wanted to watch it, um, which was completely up to me. But the, like the thing about this assault, it's one of the biggest things that's ever happened in my life, and I have no recollection of it at all. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm relying on witnesses who were there to to put a story to it. Uh, so I think just for my own understanding, I was really keen to see it, just so I could see what I looked like, what he looked like, what his body language looked yeah. like. Um, I can imagine that would be so weird, like like an out of body experience, because you know that it's you, but you have no recollection of it, and Here's you involved in this situation, which you don't remember, and you don't even fully know what's going to happen next. That must just be so strange. Yeah, I, you know, there's parts of the story that I can really connect myself to because then, you know, waking up in hospital and and you know going through that hospital process and my whole recovery, I'm really connected to that because I, yeah, I have vivid memories of it. Um, but the whole the actual reason as to why I was put in that position, um, yeah, no recollection at all, which is yeah. Really strange. And so when you did watch it for the first time, what was your reaction when you saw it? 
I probably just felt really uncomfortable. Um, but I was like, I was just curious, like curiosity was, was the most prevalent feeling. Like I just wanted to, I just wanted to absorb all of this information. I just wanted to know everything. Anyone that was there, anyone that saw it, like just tell me about it. Tell me, help, help paint the picture for me because I don't, I don't have the full picture yet, yeah. and it's all about me, which was pretty. I felt like I deserved to know exactly what happened that night. Yeah, and how did you feel um, looking at the? I mean, I assume the the scar on your head that you had for some time or whatever physical evidence there was of that when you saw that in the mirror, how did that make you feel? Yeah, I was pretty, I felt pretty ugly actually. Um, they, um, I had some hair on my head at that time as a 22 year old <laughs> and they kind of had to shave half of my head off, half of my hair off. Um, so I had this sort of weird half mohawk head with yeah, a big bald patch on the side and a big scar uh and early on it was it was kind of okay once the once they took out the staples and um once some of the swelling had subsided it looked it looked kind of okay and i was able to grow my hair back over it um but since i've been keeping my hair a little shorter um a lot of the scar tissue is quite it's probably quite hard to see but a lot of the scar tissue has sort of developed in a funny way so it is it's a weird dent on the side of my head um, that's a pretty, pretty strong reminder for me when I want to, when I want to lean into that feeling and, and um, you know, if I'm feeling uh, ungrateful about something or if I'm taking life for granted a little bit, um, it's a pretty strong physical reminder about what I, what I've got and what I really easily couldn't have. Pretty good way yeah. to straighten me out when I need yeah, it. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um. How did your parents take it um, from the from the moment that it happened, and then they were in in hospital to seeing you go through that recovery, and then in the months that followed, trying to piece your life back together? What was that like for them? Because I know if it were to happen to me and, and my parents, um, they would be totally devastated and so worried that you know you wouldn't get back on track. Yeah, it was devastating for for my mum. Earlier, earlier in the year, my dad passed away. Um, he'd had he'd had bowel cancer for about nine years in and out of remission, um, and so he died in in early May. And then it was mid September when my assault happened. So it was a pretty full on year for our family. A lot of stuff to, yeah, that's yeah. a very. Well, hard they must year. have really taken your mum pretty much to breaking point going through that all at once. <sighs> Yeah, well, I think I'm. I have five older siblings. I'm the I'm, I'm the baby of the family, and I think that was a really big thing for her. Like, I'm. It doesn't matter how old I am. I'm her, I'm her baby. So for her to feel like she almost lost me and was really close to losing me, um, yeah, at a time where she was already yeah stretched, stretched completely um, emotionally. Um, yeah, that was that was a terrifying thing for for her to go through. Um, and the whole the day of my operation, um, it wasn't until I woke up at maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon um, that they had any idea what what how I was going to be. Um, my surgeon had had to kind of tell them, "Look, we don't know either if Ben will wake up um, or if he does wake up, if he's going to be the same Ben that he used to be, or if he's going to be a different version of himself." 
Um, we can't predict any of that until it happens. So for my whole family to have to sit in a waiting room at a hospital for, you know, almost like an eight-hour day, wondering if I was going to wake up and what kind of version of myself I was going to be at that point, um, that would have felt, yeah, felt like eternity. Was that a, a, an, you know, a, a turning point that you didn't expect where you started to value your life more than you had previously? Not that you might have not so much before, but it was like a, you know, an unwanted wake-up call that, yes, in an instant, you know, in one moment, it could all be taken away from you. Was that sort of the impact that it had or was it not that clear-cut? To be honest, like, I think that was something I was really aware of. Um, uh, like a lot of, you know, a lot of success stories or a lot of, like, real turning points in people's life or stories of resilience, they, they come back to these yeah, moments in life that really reshape somebody. Um, Sometimes I feel that way. Uh, sometimes I'm really motivated by that. Other times I just like completely forget almost that something so big happened. And I, like I was saying, I take things for granted. I get, you know, sometimes the small stuff is enough to frustrate me um, like anybody. So you're, you're still human is what you're saying. <laughs> I th- I, well, I hope it's a human trait. Um, I hope I haven't missed out on some uh, golden ticket to... It sounds to a life sounds pretty human to me. Um, yeah, but um, I think what it's um, along with a lot of other like challenging things that I've faced in life. I think what it's it, what it's given me is um, maybe it's 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 changed the level of of what I can actually cope with um, emotionally. Uh, I think knowing like knowing friends that maybe haven't had a lot of uh, death in their life or haven't been impacted in, in such a huge way, um, the smaller things can rock them a bit. So I think I think this as much as a few other things that have happened in my life, I just, I roll with it better. Um, you know, when things happen, I can, I've got a pretty great scale of, you know, what's hard and what's really hard um, that a lot of other people might not have. Um, so I think, yeah, I think in that way, that's, that's a, probably a transformation. That's a funny, funny way of giving yourself power through such extreme pain and such a difficult, terrible circumstance that, you know, although it, you'd much rather it never happened, uh, and I'm sure your, your mum would as well, you come through it and you're okay again and you can't help but be stronger for it. And then it's allowed you this opportunity to then go on and speak to thousands of other young men and potentially, and I'm sure in some cases, you know, change someone's life, stop someone from throwing a punch when they might have otherwise perhaps as well. When did you get into, when did you decide I'm going to, I'm going to share this message. I'm going to go and speak to, to younger people to help them avoid this. Really early on in the piece, I think probably like three months after my assault, um, maybe even less, maybe two months. Um, I went back to my old high school in Geelong. Yeah. I just called them up told them I had a story and, and they, you know, I was only four years out of school, so they still knew me pretty well. Uh, yeah, I went and spoke to like two two year 10 groups of about 50 boys at an all boys school. I, I wasn't particularly good at it. <laughs> I didn't have a great plan. I just I just thought I'm in a really unique position where I can, I can tell these boys a story that's happened to me and it's having a huge impact on my life, not had, like it's still, I'm in the middle of it and they might be able to gain something from that. But it took it took a long time to do it regularly. 
I think about a year later, I, I got the opportunity to go and speak at a TAFE Institute also in Geelong um, to these, you know, like boys from sort of 18 to 20 who were doing their first year of trade school. And later that night, I went out with a couple of friends for a drink in Geelong and um, we we're waiting to get into a bar. And this guy tapped me on the shoulder and he said, oh, are you, you're the guy that spoke at, at TAFE today. Hey, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And he said, oh, look, I, um, me and my mates go out and most of the time we find trouble. It's just something we do for fun. And I'd never thought about the impact it might have on somebody else. I was always just thinking about myself. So I'm going to talk to my mates about what you shared with us today um, and I'm not going to go out and do that anymore and I'm going to make sure they follow suit. And I was just absolutely floored. Like, Well, not, like, not in the, not in the last way. <laughs> Not in the same as, same way as before, thankfully. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, no. Just just felt the impact. Like, well, that's why I want to do this stuff. Like, yeah, that's like a pretty amazing ripple ripple to occur to hear a kid say, "I go out and start fights with my mates, and we think it's funny, and now I see it differently." Yeah, and I'm going to make sure they understand that as well. That's what it's all about. Yeah, that was a big sort of throttle. Yeah, yeah, that definitely pulled me over to this. I started thinking about it more seriously then, as a as a um, as something I want to do regularly. Yeah, and so I guess that's that is the point um, that you're trying to get across, and it comes down to how authentically you come across, and the way you're able to put it so that you're believable, and so that guys who are in a different chapter of their life can relate to what you're saying and, and take you seriously rather than just go, uh, you know, the typical response at that age which and continuing th- sometimes the whole way through the 20s, which is that I'm invincible and, yeah, that happened to you, but like you're weak, it had never happened to me because I know how to fight would be the comment from some kids uh, <laughs> and, and young people. So yeah. trying to break through that, uh, you know, um, bullshit you know masochism sort of attitude is not easily done i'm sure you found yeah and i think i've learned yeah i learned probably the hard way like the first few presentations that i did i learned really quickly what worked and what didn't um it's a tough way to learn that particular lesson but it's sped up my yeah it's sped up my sort of developing skill set pretty fast but i think something that i really try and try and bring when I'm speaking with like speaking at schools and speaking with young people. Like I'm not I don't go in to tell them what to do. Um I don't point fingers and say this is how you should behave when you go out. This is, you know, do A, B and C. Um kids have parents, kids have teachers, plenty of people in their life telling them what to do. Um what I really try and offer is is my story um and here's some other examples of, of other people that have gone through similar things, maybe with really far more severe consequences than me but this is like this is for you like this is for you to take to absorb to pick apart however you feel like you want to yeah i don't want to go in and tell them that they got to get better or that they got to start yeah. living their life you wouldn't be able to anyway no who's going to listen no. to that yeah i just want them to know that this is something that happened to me um and i'm a pretty normal guy and this is what i've yeah this is what i've come to understand about it but I think as well as that, like, um, 
a teacher at a school a few years ago, a school I work with quite regularly, she gave me the understanding that I was actually providing some hope for young people that a really shit thing can happen in your life and that's not it. And I probably wasn't aware that I was that I was offering that to young people until she brought it into my awareness. But yeah, I just I knew from the moment, not from the moment, I knew from relatively early on when this assault happened that I could let it be a really shit thing that happened in my life, push it aside and try and move on, or I could claim it and turn it into something that I was going to be, um, I guess, maybe proud of and turn it, like, just turn it into a positive. It was really easy to look at the negatives and I did that a lot and it took a bit more effort to try and, yeah, make it become a positive. Yeah. But like, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take it back. Um, I wouldn't go and change the course again. I think I've gained more from it than, than was taken away from me by, by tenfold. What's the sense that you get that, that you're being listened to? Often I think um, telling a story like mine, it's, it can just hopefully plant a seed. Um, some, some kids might, might, not, not, might not get it all straight away. Um, it just gives them something that they can sit with um, and the conversation can come up later. I think that's, that's some pretty common feedback I get from schools that teachers will say, you know, a few days following that a student will come up and, and want to ask them a question about it or have a conversation about it. Uh, and for me, I feel like that's, that's probably one of the biggest impacts that I can have um, in the short amount of time that I get to work with them. Mm. That a few days later, it's still, or it's come back into their mind or they've thought more about it, they've ruminated on it, they've got a question about it. Um, that's like, to me, like the best kind of evidence that I can get. Um, it's a very difficult thing to measure. Um, you know, 10 years down the track, someone might be in a situation of conflict and they remember my presentation and they decide not to throw a punch. Um, but like, I don't know how we're going to measure that. It's very, very tricky. Um, I think you can just. I guess that's not enough of a deterrent. Yeah, I think you can just have faith that 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 is happening and has probably already happened many times. Um, and you just have to believe that you're making that little difference that could change someone's life for the better. Um, and you just have to believe in that. And I'm sure it's true. Have you got a? Is there another? Is there another story that you tell young people as well when you do your presentations? about someone else or is it yeah so i work for a charity called the pat cronin foundation um pat was a 19 year old guy who uh, back in 2016 um he was assaulted at a bar um, not far from his home in melbourne and he had a severe brain hemorrhage and um it wasn't it wasn't detected early enough and um pat died the next day um yeah just horrific story and his parents and his family have, uh, yeah, set up this foundation uh, to help bring awareness to what happened to Pat that night, how easily it happened, um, the impact that it's had on their lives, on his mates' lives, on their whole community. Yeah, just to get what I've trying to, what I've been doing for a long time. It's it's another really important story that young people, I think, really need to hear, and are certainly gravitating towards hearing Pat's story as well. Just. Because yeah, the, like the hard part is that these stories aren't stopping. Mm. Um, 
you know, Pat was four years ago. My story was 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, I remember it happened here in Adelaide in 2017 as well. That was actually a night that I was out in town. I was back visiting um, after living in the country. And I remember it was probably only an hour or so after I went home and there was uh, someone who was hit with a, a one uh, one punch um, on the corner out on the street and hit the head on the curb and died as well. And that was one of the sort of worst examples of it where it, it goes to that extreme. But I am also have been a uh, television reporter in Adelaide for the past couple of years and the amount of times that I've had to go to Hanley Street, which is our version of your King yeah. Street. Um, I know Hanley Street. You know, on Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. to report on whoever got King hit the night before or coward punched the night before. You know, I've lost count how many times we've gone to go and do that. It's just so often that it happens. Um, do you think that that will ever change in a world where uh, there is drugs and alcohol and testosterone and, and young people whose brains aren't fully developed trying to prove themselves when they're inebriated, obviously, is a bit of a recipe for disaster. Do you think we're always going to see these stories? I think it's a really hard, the hardest part about this issue is there's no quick fix. There's no one thing that changes all of the outcomes, just the way you explained it, um, the development of, of the brain, you know, where our brains aren't fully developed for men until we're 25. Yeah, I think largely it comes down to, to underlying values. My, my manager has this saying, um, alcohol doesn't make you do things, it lets you do things. And, you know, if you're, if you're someone that's not, not processing your emotions, not, um, not able to fully understand how you're going um, in life, mixing that with some alcohol and inhibitions are down and, and suddenly you've got an outlet for these feelings you can't label and you don't fully understand, that's it's understandable that, that violence is, is an outcome of that. Uh, I think especially for men, um, something that I think will have a big effect is, is building our emotional literacy as kids, um, as primary school kids, as high school kids, mm. and for guys to be able to talk about their emotions, yeah, talk about when things aren't going well. Um, yeah, I think understanding emotions is a really big one. Often it's like, you know, I was angry. Yeah. And so I hit him. Yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing beyond that. Like there's nothing, no. there's no understanding about maybe what made them angry all the different things leading up to that. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, that's just – that's really hard for boys. We don't we don't get the same permission that girls get to express their feelings. Um, you know, boys are allowed to be angry and they're allowed to be sad and that's kind of it. We don't get, we don't get permission to feel a lot of other feelings that girls are encouraged to explore and understand from a very early age. Yeah. Um, There's that stereotype. Yeah, I think that has a huge role. That's – long existed as well that men are you know it's meant to fight and to be a man is to be able to fight and that you know you can actually get respect for taking out your anger or not having control and, and unleashing that and that that is actually something to be lauded over as a man um that's a pretty mm -hmm. difficult thing to turn around but it it can be done it's just it takes a long time and it takes a lot of conversations like we're having and a lot of conversations with 
younger people as they get older and go through that phase and then become parents themselves. It's about changing that stereotype that, you know, men talk with their fists, which is absolutely ridiculous. But it's the kind of stuff that we grow up seeing in movies when, you know, Jason Statham punches some guy 20 times in the face and he's still okay, like, afterwards. That's not like real life either. I mean, so many people I'm assuming who go out and decide to throw what becomes a devastating punch, they probably haven't done it before. I mean, some of them might have, but they have no idea that, you know, just this one punch could end this person's life or put them in a wheelchair for life. Um, and you know, in turn, mm-hmm. also ruin the life of the person who's throwing it. And they, their idea of, of violence and what they're capable of is probably way off from from the reality. Yeah, and I think even like even in my position, I actually looked at it as, as a rite of passage to be in a fight. I'd gone through all of high yeah. school and had never been in a, had never been hit, had never started a fight. And got to my early twenties and really started to think like, is this something that I needed to tick off as a life? Experience? Like it's losing your virginity um, or something ridiculous like that, you know. And that other other yeah, other blokes yeah. in that in that uh, space where you know letting your emotions out is definitely not an option. Where men would say to each other, "Oh, you know, can you fight? Or have you been in a fight? Or I've been in this many fights? Or I've never lost a fight?" And it's all a, "Oh yeah, like that's good." And that's a good thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think the more that that's the more that the more that violence is talked about in that way, like that's you know, and that's you know that was my perspective when I was in high school, and only because I never saw any sort of devastating consequences. If you got something out of this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show, so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Youngblood Podcast community Facebook group and follow Youngblood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email youngbloodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com. This podcast was produced by the talented Rory Noak at Podbooth. You can check them out at podbooth.com.au. This is Youngblood. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.